If you're in the market for a super addictive puzzle game, you have to check out Mini Motorways on Apple Arcade. It's a city planning strategy puzzler with an incredibly satisfying gameplay loop. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today. That's sifter.com.au slash arcade for a free one-month trial of Apple Arcade, and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. New subscribers only, $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pixel Sift. This one is episode 46. My name is Gianni and we have a bunch of stuff in today's show, including an interview with Jesse Yeo from the Nostalgia Box, which is Perth's first retro gaming museum. Hi, I am Jesse, and I'm from the Nostalgia Box. The Nostalgia Box is essentially a video game console museum, so people can come in and learn about the history and then experience retro gaming. Yeah, we're also discussing whether our gaming habits are changing, and if because or because game the game is getting older. Or I'm, ah, man, I mucked that up. Let's try that anyway, again. um, if. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're also because talking about gaming is getting game is getting older. Or we're also talking casualization of video game design. Yep. And our final oh. topic for today, we'll be looking at the world of early access games and monetary issues that can follow. That's coming up a little bit later. But right now, we have the shipping news with Brian Fairbanks. Melbourne studio Tin Man Games just released the digital tabletop adventure game Warlock of Firetop Mountain, which includes a dyslexia-friendly option. For those who need it, it is an absolutely vital inclusion in the tabletop RPG video game hybrid, as text boxes are constantly flashing on screen to enliven the narrative and further connect one's imagination to the game world. It's a simple yet effective method, and one that allows more people to enjoy the game. Warlock was inspired most heavily by the 1982 paperback game book written by Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston. The Warlock of Firetop Mountain is a tabletop adventure game come to life. You can find it on Steam. Canberra-based Whale Hammer Games released Tahira, Echoes of the Astral Empire, on the 1st of September. This game looks unique as it blends two distinctly different genres, dark medieval and sci-fi space. It's a tactical turn-based RPG set on a world fallen into a medieval dark age after the collapse of a spacefaring civilization. You must guide Tahira, the 20-year-old princess of Avistan, on the most challenging night of her life as she fights to save her people from the genocidal Astral Empire. The art style is dramatically distinctive, with a comic book look reminiscent of Don't Starve in Darkest Dungeon. It's on sale on Steam right now. Check it out. Released earlier this year, but beginning to make a splash on Steam, is a game by Perth-based studio Kodots Games called Wanda, A Beautiful Apocalypse. Wanda is a minimalist, story-rich puzzler about two robotic life forms finding happiness, companionship, and hope in a lonely post-apocalyptic world. Unlike many other end-of-the-world games, Wanda is not about a desperate survival, but about finding companionship, love, and hope in a wasteland. Wanda features the story partially told in a robotic language, 
so the audience must discern the story content and infer what they must do from the many cutscenes in the game. You can find more about this game on codotsgames.com, that's codots with a K, and you can find the game on Steam. And that was Gaming News. Pixel Civ! It's not Pixel Civ, it's Pixel Sift. Pixel Civ! One of the big trends in game design now is to go for the simple social experiences with some of the most popular games being made now um, that you can experience the whole game in pretty much under an hour and everything about it. Um, so what is causing developers to move in this direction? Are today's games not, are just not having an, gamers not just having enough time to play anymore? Or is this the gaming world just becoming filthy and casual? I haven't even got enough time to get that sentence I know, out of right? your mouth, Mitch. It's just, yeah. <laughs> We're in a fast-paced world. Yeah. It's brutal. Some of the big examples of this, obviously, um, we've talked about games moving towards this. Uh, one of the games that I used to play a lot uh, was a game called, a little, little one you might have heard of, called World of Warcraft. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's always been complaints uh, in that game. I mean, it's been over a decade now that it's been around and people kind of saying that the, the game has been catering more towards casuals and this sort of experience where you jump in, jump out, rather than the grindy, old-school RPG um, sort of experiences that people would have had previously um, and, you know, moving towards this thing. And part of it is that, and as I've known over my experiences of, of moving through this game as I had been playing it for, you know, almost the same amount of time that it's been out, is that as I get on in, in my life, um, you, the time that you have to play decreases. Um, so, you know, you want things where you can just jump in and, and it's a big sort of design element now, this sort of little bite sized bits and pieces that you can pick up and play yeah my friend Kyle and I we play Destiny a lot and now he's started full time work and he doesn't really have enough time to play with the group anymore so there's this nice little game mode in that called Prison of Elders and you can just play that and it's about maybe an hour session and that you get the similar similar equipment that you would find in a full raid and you get leveled equipment and the rewards are the same. So I guess it's a it's a slightly more a different way of playing. The challenge is still there, but it just takes a little bit less time and it actually takes less people as well. It can be done with three guardians instead of the six-man team that a raid requ- requires. And if you think about that, like you probably wouldn't be able to play with your friend. If, Absolutely not. If you didn't have that option available to yeah. you. I mean, you have uh, more time to play at the moment. and Absolutely. Yeah. The, you can get into the, some of the other modes which allow a bit more of a time spent. But, you know, there are sort of this sort of trend towards this sort of bite-sized gameplay loops. And I think Destiny, um, you know, coming from Bungie was obviously one that they have, you know, perfected this short 30 seconds of fun, the thing they talk about. And they're just kind of extending that out so that you have maybe 30 minutes of fun. Mm-hmm. And that's enough to kind of have a good good time in the game. Like we're also seeing a lot of just like what's popular in, in relation to what's being designed. It's like things like the MOBAs and Overwatch and things like that, where the game, a game of Overwatch lasts about maybe 20 minutes. And you can probably jump into one of those if you have a free moment and but you don't you the pretty much the whole overwatch experience can be achieved in one game pretty much you don't need to like spend hours upon hours of course that experience is different depending on who you play and who you're up against but largely you can achieve it you don't feel like you're losing out on anything yeah as with most games like you play it more you're going to get better at it but um the like the the i guess the entry level is really easy for a game like that you can jump in and you can pretty you can play it straight away um, You've spent a lot of time in the the Battlefield games, which basically 
you know, kind of Which take is, this method of, of a short match where you play and extend it out. I mean, absolutely. The, the thing we see is that obviously this sort of format of idea, multiplayer games which had short matches, um, that sort of thinking has kind of been applied to other games where you do have these little short missions where you jump in and, and do bits and pieces. You know, Destiny, for example, you've got these little small, um, you know, Prison of Elders uh, missions that you do. Um, but then there's other ways that we can kind of approach that. For And there's a, funnily enough, there's a lot of pushback, though. People are getting yep. very uh, angry about this uh, simplification, uh, they saw the casualization of, of gameplay loops, and you know people who were previously playing, uh, especially in this, uh, you know, Warcraft. I'll draw back on again. Um, people get really mad that you know someone had to work really hard in the past to do a particular thing, and they've just made it really simple. As much as, uh, as you said, like mobas and any kind of, I guess, um, multiplayer, mixed multiplayer, like RPGs and whatever. Um, regardless of the popularity of that, you know, the the, the top grossing games are still classics i guess in, in format wise but interestingly enough other games like you know battlefield and more call of duty or whatever where you can jump in and the, the entry level is basically the same for everybody like the top 10 grossing games of last year were like call of duty um and you know madden nfl um nba 2k16 fifa 16 like lots of games there where yeah like i said you you'll get better if you play it more but anybody can jump in and just start playing so it kind of lends itself to that idea that casual gaming is, you know, is it, is this most popular still? It's one of these arguments that we've we've talked about before, and there's this idea of what a gamer is, and that definition has kind of broadened out now into meaning lots of different things, and that you know there can often be a, an argument that some people of the gaming thing say that this game doesn't suit me. So therefore, it's a bad game, or but, I don't like that particular ty- style of thing. So it's a bad game. But it can be that games can be made that aren't for you. Yeah, just because you don't like a game doesn't mean it's not good. It just means you don't like it and it's not for you. I personally, as just about to start full time work, um, I'm thinking of the sort of games which allow me to jump in and play mm. are going to be the games I'm going to play more often, and it lets me stay within this sort of experience. And the, those games usually fit in the quotation marks casual. Yeah. variety yeah, yeah, I yeah. guess like for example like the proliferation of mobile games yeah. like I think those are like as phones get more powerful and they're already really powerful I think you're going to see just a lot of things come out of that department well like right? as, as we know the, and we've mentioned it many many times but the, raise, raise, the rising age of the average gamer I think we're at to about 35 or so and I, I, th- I saw predictions of 37 like so it's even going faster than the years yeah. like, which is just baffling but amazing um and as far as, yeah, your mobile gamers and basically turning everyone into a gamer is what this whole mobile kind of platform has done to anything. Like, I think the, the term gamer is going to go away soon. Uh, it's, it's just going to be like... Well, it's just going to be... You don't new, say new. someone who goes to movies is a filmer. Well, yeah. casual gaming has brought out along the title of gamer versus game player. Mm. Um, yeah. So, like, there's a lot of people that don't even identify as gamer. I barely do either because it comes with all sorts of preconceived Extra notions or whatever. And yeah. stuff. But, like, as far as, you know, how much I love our stats, I'm, I'm back to it. Um, American-based ones, though. Like, 49% of American adults play video games. Like, that's a pretty staggering figure. 60% of adults who play video games believe that most video game players are men, though, unfortunately. There's a perception versus what happens. I mean, but of all those people, sorry, only ten percent actually describe themselves as a gamer. Yeah, I think that's it. Many people would. I don't know that someone who is playing, a, you know, mobile game on their phone, words with friends, uh, you know, Angry Birds or whatever, would they consider themselves a gamer or they're just playing a mobile game? Exactly, they're a game player. Yeah, it's it's very sort of. Well, I've always said like the the today's Angry Birds player is tomorrow's like Destiny player. Or Destiny like Two that. player. It's, yeah, Destiny Two player. It's a gateway. I, I think so. <laughs> gateway game yeah. yeah well I think this is the this is the big thing that we have to kind of think about is that yes we are now 
obviously got many different choices. But it doesn't mean that, you know, when you were younger, you kind of wanted to play all of the big ones. Mm. But as you get older, you obviously decide... Or, you know, your life circumstances dictate that you can only play a certain amount of games. And that's not a bad thing. You know, there are going to be always more voices in there and more yep. games for you to play, which is but something that I think is cool. All sorts of new stuff that's changing the way we look at games and the gaming kind of, uh, you know, outlook. Like, you know, we've got parents like our, our age and even older, like advocating for games. We've got, you know, um, the blurred line between gaming and social media. We've got like, you know, minor indie labels becoming major labels, esports. Like, exactly. Yeah, the frontier is changing. I was talking to my friend. Uh, he's just had a baby and I'm like just imagine the terrible Pokemon that will be out by the time your your child can play Pokemon <laughs> tell him to a look lot into of the terrible rise ones. of silver games rise of silver games let's jump into our next topic watch episodes let's plays and more at youtube.com forward slash pixelsiftau now, most of you would be familiar with that feeling uh, that playing the consoles of your youth would bring. If you're especially an older gamer, you would definitely have that understanding of the feeling. Get used to not having that feeling. <laughs> Jesse <laughs> Yo uh, took that feeling and she turned it into a collecting hobby. And collecting consoles and games from all over the world, she then took her collection and opened f- Perth's first video game museum. Uh, Mitch and I had the opportunity to chat to Jesse and we asked her what prompted her to open her collection to the world. Um, it's sort of a crazy idea, really. Um, a few years back, um, you know, I was, you know, working in a corporate job and I didn't really like it and I wanted to do something fun and interesting and something that I'll see myself doing it long term. And I have always been, you know, a big fan of games. I grew up playing games and... Every time I see something, you know, I I played when I was a little kid, I would go really excited and, you know, and it's a really good feeling and I wanted to bring that back. And when I was thinking what I want to do with, you know, my life, I thought, you know, why not start a business and base the concept around this? So what is it about the retro consoles that make you want to collect them and add as many into your collection and, um, you know, hold on to them for as long as possible? What was the point that kind of decide, you decided, well, I should probably share this with with other people um it's the nostalgia i guess um i grew up with nintendo uh, consoles you know i'm a big uh mario fan and i started off you know kept all the stuff that i grew up with and then you know and when i look into the history and i find it really interesting and um, if you come to the museum, you see we have over 100 consoles on display and they are pretty much um, the important consoles that have made an impact in the video game history. So it's just to showcase you know, a really good timeline of um, from the start to what we have today. So people get an understanding of the whole um video game history really Johnny and I were taking a look around on Friday we were there for play up and we noticed that some of them looked really obscure how do you spot like a fake that is a good question you just gotta be like um 
do your research properly. You know, just be very careful before you buy something because there are a lot of clones out there, and you just got to do your homework. I guess related to that question, what would be your console holy grail? What haven't you got that yet that you really want? Uh, there's this uh, console. It's it's basically uh, Japan's first ever console, and it's released by Epoch, um, and it's called Electro Tennis. So it's essentially a pong game, and it is really rare and really expensive. And if I have the chance, there's one thing that I really want to get, and you know, to add into my collection. What's your favorite thing that you've got in your collection so far? That your, I guess, your uh, prized possession out of the collection you've got. It would be a nostalgia thing for me. It, it's really common console. It, it's the NES. That is like my first one, and you know, it's really you know holds a really have a really um, intimate place in my heart. So yeah, that's that one. Do you think that's a good place for people to start if they're interested in in collecting consoles to think of the things that are important to them and then expand from there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you collect because you want to and you feel good about it. It's not about, I don't know, some other people collect just for fun. And yeah, I think it's really important to, you know, collect because you like it and not just doing it for the sake of it. What's the standard in which that you include something in your collection? Does it have to still be working or can it be just the shell of it or can I guess um, when do you not include something in your collection um, so all the most of the stuff I have are still in working condition and but there are a minority that um, is just for show so um, so for the ones that are just for show it's really it's really um, for people to see what it looks like in real life and then it's really hard you know I've I try to find um, you know, consoles that are working and in good condition, but you know, sometimes you don't get that. So um, to let people have an overview of um, the you know, the history, so sometimes I get um, you know, consoles that are broken and just just to display them. So um, if they are broken, where do you go for like repairs or refurbishment? Um, I know a guy here that does um, repairs, so I have a go-to guy. <laughs> Is it? Are they the older consoles? Are they able to be repaired, or have we reached a point now where it's very difficult to make them work again? If they, you know, finding parts and all of these sorts of things. Um, based on the guy, he's like really expert in you know repairing. Um, he's doing a really good job, so I would still say you know it's still they are still repairable. Unless you really wreck it really badly. Jesse, I had a question. Um, what, what's the price range of, like, let's say, a retro console? Is it comparable to something current gen? It depends what consoles, really. Um, some consoles go... It depends the quality, um, the rarity, and, you know, yeah. And it depends on the timing as well. So you you might find some consoles that are really expensive that might... You know, like go for five, six hundred, or you know, even up to like a few thousand. So it re- really depends. Um, and f- if you had to, I guess, uh, you know, think of the the best advice you could give to someone who's interested in collecting consoles, what would that be? 
Um, do your research. Um, find out what you really want. Um, and you know, get do your research properly. You know, get uh, your prices from a few sources and be patient and know your budget. Yeah. Know your budget. I think that's a very uh, good advice for anyone who collects uh, retro stuff or, or current gen things as well. Uh, Jesse, thank yeah. you very much for joining us today on uh, this episode of Pixel Sift. Thank you so much for having me. Jesse Yeo. Uh, you can visit the Nostalgia Box seven days a week if you are in Western Australia. They are in Northbridge. You can head to thenostalgiabox.com.au for more information. You're listening to Pixel Have you ever played an early access game? Have you ever played a game that maybe wasn't quite right or quite finished? If yes, you definitely are not alone here. Our final topic for today will be looking at the problems surrounding early access games and their issues with cla- uh, cash flow and expected deliverables. One of the big uh, examples that we have come across this week, Ark Survival Evolved, uh, a game that's been in early access for probably just a little bit over a year now, caused a lot of uh, hype when it came out. Everyone was pretty excited for it. It's sort of a hybrid server-based multiplayer crafty survival dinosaur yeah. game. Okay, now you're just saying words. Yeah. Stop, stop. <laughs> Adjective. Yeah. Yeah. It's got uh, buttons in it and you click <laughs> to get points. I don't know. No, but the point is that they have now... Ask people to start paying for the new content. The DLCs, yeah. The DLC content. Yep. yep. That's right. For a game that's technically not even out yet. <laughs> yeah, so for a lot of people who thought that they would be continually adding content during this early access phase, um, which is sort of, I guess, the general understanding of this um, term in that you have a phase in which you are building the game up, you're getting feedback, you're tweaking things, and you're kind of rewarding the players who get in early, give you a little bit of cash to kind of keep the game going um, with a bit of extra stuff. So it's kind of like a different, it's a variation on the Kickstarter or the crowdfunding type thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's, it's sort of this idea that's kind of changing the way that we, you know, make games. You know, we were speaking to uh, Kate a few weeks ago, um, Kate Rains Goldie from uh, FTI, about how you couldn't possibly ship a game that wasn't finished in the past, but because we've got access to systems now that let us create games that are early access that you can update frequently, you know, it allows for people to do these sort of things. And if you are a smaller studio working on a game, it does mean that you can use that feedback that you get from players to make a better final game when it comes to it. So, and there are great success stories when we look at this uh, at, at early access, even though it's you know still a fairly new thing, I guess, as far as the uh, video game landscape, landscape goes. But Minecraft was um, pretty uh, much the pioneer of this sort of model, really. Yeah, and, I mean, there were ones that came before Minecraft, but it was just the first one that kind of really was amazingly successful at it. I think it, it might have just, like, coined the whole strategy, I think, Minecraft. Yeah, it sort of started this trend that obviously Minecraft was such a huge hit, um, became very, very popular, and sort of was a work in progress as people were sort of selling, as, as um, Marcus Person was yeah, I mean, selling it. Yeah, with m- Minecraft, they, it was out in, what, like, 09 for, like, $13. Yep. I don't think it became full access until, like, 2011. Yeah, something so like it was that. So it was in early access for, like, two years, which I th- is I think crazy. the biggest failing that this system has for... the It, it, it kind of fails the relationship between gamers and the developer because people aren't really sure at what point they actually have the product like 
Yeah. It the, just it just the, seems like early access just mm-hmm. means an excuse for things not to work. Well, yeah. one of the like, things yeah, I heard to about... To ship an unfinished game. Yeah, mm. essentially. And I'm not saying that that's what everyone does, but it just seems like sometimes you can lose a bit of faith. I think Absolutely. faith is a good way to put it. There is faith on both sides. Uh, you know, you are sort of taking the early access money from players um, in good faith that you will provide a game that will be finished at some point that they'll be able to sort of shape the experience of and they can have something that is, you know, maybe you're taking a little bit of a risk, but you're hoping that it kind of gets to a good point. And I think that's the problem with this Ark Survival Evolved story in that it's, people feel like this faith that they had already kind of invested in this game um, is kind of not being rewarded in that they're kind of going to, you know, extend and, and take extra catch. You know, making a game is expensive. So, you know, it could be that they are... You know, looking to put DLC and extra content into this game because it costs a lot of money to make a game, especially of the scope of something like Ark. And look, that's fine, but like, do your your community right by saying that you know by by giving it a, a final date so that after that it's not early access and and people don't feel burnt when they have to pay twenty dollars for a you know a DLC. I um, think there's a, a difference in the way that sort of early access mm. is thought of from a development perspective. We've talked to developers before and they've said to us that early access really is your release if you think about it these days. And lots of people don't go to early access. They'll do internal builds or they'll do you know public builds at events like PlayUp we have here. There's other ones over in, in Melbourne as well and Sydney and all of the other places around Australia and the world where they test it out in person and then go for a full release because people think an early access game is, is what it is. And there is sort of an expectation that you're going to keep updating your game regardless of whether it's a early access game or a full release. So that's it. You need a clear path to launch if you're going to go into early access. You can't just half-ass it because, you, you, like you said, it's all a bit of faith. So you're going to have people, um, you know, let's say like Peter Molyneux, uh, who <laughs> are going to, you know, not do the right thing as far as these uh, early access games go and, and they're collecting the money. Because the problem is, is, and it's not talked about often enough, is cash flow. If you are launching a game in early access, you need to be able to do that without relying on the cash flow coming in through early access. You need to be able to do that completely separately. It can't just be for cash because you're going to go all wrong and things are going to go badly. Uh, and there's always going to be a spike at the beginning of your launch as well yeah, as you gain sort of a, a popularity and it will taper off. So you can't sort of spend like you're going to have that money every day for the development cycle. I've only ever bought or I've only ever participated in one early access ever. Uh, usually are you expected to pay a bit more when the game actually comes out? Well, generally not. It's kind of like a bit like a pre-order bonus for for people. It tends to be once the game comes to release, anyone who buys it after that point, they're going to pay a higher price generally. Um, And then after that, they can include DLC as as an add-on. That's the communication thing. It's like an unwritten rule where that happens, but really there's no real obligation for that to happen, right? I mean... No, but... Kind and of you're buying it as it is at that time. There's no obligation for the game to even be finished. Absolutely. Some of the games- Absolutely. And it's like Kickstarter in that way. Yeah. That you, you, you get in early. And if it, if it comes in the end, then you generally get something. You get it cheaper, you get blah, blah, blah. But if it doesn't, it's all a bit like sad, sad face. So yeah. do you think it's like half maybe the responsibility on the customer themselves is to say, hey, you do realize at this point it may not even be a thing. And this yeah. what you're paying for right now might be all you get. People need to understand what they're getting into. Like, you know, um, and there's different different, uh, schools of thought on how a game should be ready for early access. And you've got the people that are going to rush it out regardless and try and get a little bit more money to keep things going. Or you've got people that generally are going to use it. And the way it should be used is to to put it out and source the final of the game from from your community. Um, 
the, the problem with that is you, mm. you've got to have a good community. That's like right. If you, just, if you just rely on everyone out there, it's not going to work. There's too many jerks out there. There's uh, you know, extremely demanding users, uh, contradicting feedback, you know, controversies that blow up and like, you know... Comparisons to other games who've done the game different things. Killed the game before it even started. I mean, yeah. look at the, the whole kind of zombie um, you know, remake. We've got, you know, uh, DayZ and blah, blah, blah. And one of them was uh, the War Z. That was another one. Yeah, that was another early access game that kind yeah. of just fell over and, and, you know, had problems with cash flow. One of the uh, the big notable... Z1 as well. Yeah, one of the notable examples is, um, speaking of Kickstarter Success. as well, is Broken Age, which was uh, Double Fine's uh, point-and-click adventure game. It was originally designed to be like a small budget. We're just going to see how we can go, make this happen, um, see if people are actually interested in, in adventure games. It was really popular. It was hugely popular. It kind of expanded in scope um, to the point where it became very difficult for the company to kind of, uh, for Double Fine to continue it on um, because it was a much bigger, much more complex game. Um, at one point, they kind of had to break the game into two parts. They started selling the first chapter to kind of get a bit more positive cash flow for the game. And then they eventually released the final chapter at the end. So, you know, some people were really upset about that because they're like, we're, we're paying, I paid my $20 for a game, but, you know, your $20 doesn't immediately relate into a game. And there's lots of other funding mixes in the background, which, you know, make this possible um, that, you know, something like even when we spoke to Trent Custers, for example, from uh, Armello back in one of the, you know, the early teen episodes we had, he said, yeah, that Kickstarter that we did, we did a lot of research, but that was not our only funding source. There are other ways in which that kind of comes along. And yeah, I think it just sort of, you need to think about how that sort of shifts the paradigm to the consumer versus other funding sources. So yeah, there's a risk sort of proposition there. Yeah. Um, I really liked some comments by Atala Sigmund from Red Hook Studios. He basically kind of voiced what I was revoicing before that like you know there's the cash flow kind of timing benefit that can't be ignored um it's important to make a distinction like you can get into real trouble if early access is the only source of money you need to complete the game like like i said you've just got you've got to have a plan of regardless of how early the access is if you don't have a, a, a foreseeable kind of tangible plan from to get to the end you're doing your, your community wrong and, and keep your community informed about what you're doing because not, not, there's <clears> nothing that the compute the community hates more than something happens and they don't know about it or lies or just, there's just no or <laughs> um, no information yeah you actually i got a really good quote from luke uh, mckinney who was comparing it to like you know something else outside of games he's like you wouldn't uh pay a stranger halfway through fixing your toilet and you'll see soon see why we don't normally do that and you still won't be dealing with as much shit, shit as you do with the early access market <laughs> And on that note, I think we've reached the end of our plan and we're going to get uh, get the feedback from you. Uh, thank you for joining us for this episode of Pixel Sift. We hope you've enjoyed it. As usual, uh, we have a website. It's called www.pixelsift.com.au. On that page, you'll find links and information. You'll find videos. You'll find the video recording of this episode up there. Um, we're keeping in touch with people on social media, aren't we, Scott? Yeah, we're making an effort at it. Uh, go to facebook.com forward slash pixel sift. Uh, Twitter.com forward slash pixel sift, twitch.tv forward slash pixel sift, and youtube.com forward slash pixel sift and AU. And Mitch, our older episodes are available yeah, to you can peruse. Check them, you can check them out on our site, or you can go to iTunes, Pocket Casts, or using the RSS link on our page. Google Play for you in the US Google for Play. some reason. Don't know why it's still not here yet. Um, that's all we, we got. We literally to... can't have it here on you Google Play. cannot have it here unless you've got a VPN, but I'm not telling you how to use a VPN anyway. <laughs> Thanks for joining I us. I make this show and I can't have it. Wouldn't dream of it. You, you can, Mitch, if <laughs> yeah. you listen to your heart. Yep. Thanks for joining us, guys. We will see you again this time next week. Peace out. See ya. Picture 
Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. 